health is wealth, and this is where we're going to talk about it. The Small Conversations for a Better World podcast with hosts Jillian McCormick and Susanna Steers. This podcast represents the opinions of the hosts and or their guests to the show. The content is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice nor establish legal standard of care. Hello, and welcome to the Small Conversations for a Better World podcast. I'm Susanna Steers. And I'm Jillian McCormick. I don't know about you, Jillian, but I am an avid CBC listener. I gotta say, I'm not. (laughs) Well, you know what? I think it's a family thing. It's almost inherited. CBC Radio was like the soundtrack to my childhood, driving home from skiing in the morning, getting ready. And I still do it today. It, the, the CBC's early edition has been a staple in my morning routine for years. As I brush my teeth and do my hair, I'm listening in. So I happened to be listening one morning a couple of years ago when the then host, Rick Clough, interviewed our next guest about her research. At the time, I was working with a colleague on a course that we created for fitness pros and physios and nurse educators and other helping professions. And the course was about uh, creating connections between people to improve therapeutic relationships and the outcomes that result from those relationships. And part of our course touched on research that indicated that spending time in nature is an important way to help us kind of center ourselves and balance our nervous systems. And that when practitioners are centered and balanced, um, we can access a sort of neutral and open space from which we can better support our clients through challenges and, and through the things that they're going through. So when I heard that someone was doing research about the relationship between nature, urban design, and mental health, I was riveted. I think I even sent her a message on Twitter the very same day. I was so excited to learn more. Dr. Emily Jessica Rugel recently received her doctorate from the University of British Columbia's School of Population and Public Health, where her dissertation developed a comprehensive model of natural spaces across Metro Vancouver and applied it to the prescription data and to health surveys that have assessed social ties and mental health. More broadly, her work explores health-promoting urban design with the aim of developing scientific evidence that can be embedded in sustainability plans and in policies that advance equity. She's remained in academia as a postdoctoral fellow in the Faculty of Forestry, but firmly believes in the acquisition of knowledge through chance encounters as well as classroom instruction. And uh, if ours was not a chance encounter, I'm not sure what is. Joining us from Berlin, I am really pleased to welcome Dr. Emily Rugel to our podcast today. Jillian and I are so pleased you're able to join us for our small conversation. I'm so excited to build on that chance encounter you had with me in radio format and to join your podcast listeners today. That's great. Welcome. So before we dive into the meat of your research, we'd like to get to know you a little bit. So right now, you're in Berlin. How did you come to do what you do now? And why are you there? Yeah. Um, So as you mentioned, I'm a pretty newly minted PhD. um, And I came kind of through a circuitous route, as many of us do, to public health um, and to Vancouver, where I got my PhD. Um, I actually, I started off in journalism. I've always been interested in storytelling and also um, combining kind of narrative and evidence. Um, and I realized after working in a bunch of different kinds of journalism 
that I really wanted to make more of a direct impact. Um, I was actually doing um, online research, helping connect people with health resources. So I was already really interested in, in people's health and how we um, promote that at the individual level. But I realized that I wanted to do something that affected more than the folks that were sending me emails with these questions about their own individual health. Um, so I went back and got a master of public health and worked um, for the National Institutes of Health in the U.S. for a while um, and realized that I still wasn't really having that immediate connection with, with people um, that I wanted. So I ended up um, in Vancouver at UBC and really um, fell in love with this notion of how we can design cities um, that affect the health of all of their residents in a positive way. What was it that drew you to the UBC program in particular? I'm just curious. Yeah. So um, at the time, UBC had funding from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research to um, look at kind of this exact topic, um, bridging what can be really distinct and um, unconnected fields of public health, engineering, um, and policy. Um, unfortunately, the program lost its funding, so it's not around anymore. But that was what um, allowed me to come to UBC. Fantastic. And I think I see here that you did your maybe undergrad in Washington, D.C.? I'm from D.C. originally, yeah. So I did my undergrad at um, NYU in New York. I've always oh, okay. been, uh, and I grew up in D.C., so I've always been a city person um, and actually when I first came to UBC, I was interested in a kind of related but slightly different aspect of um, urban design. I wanted to look at the health effects of gentrification. Um, so there's some wow. interesting, actually, connections between gentrification and green space that we can talk about a little more. Um, but I started looking into how nature really shapes our mental health in particular and realized that it was um, something that we needed more research on, especially if we wanted to get to the point where we could be good partners in public health with urban planners um, and really help them, again, you know, design and maintain cities that achieve that need. Um, it, I'm just thinking, in some of your research, as I was looking through it, you outlined some really important data around mental health in Canada. You suggest that the burden of mental health disorders has increased something like 30 percent between 1990 and 2010, and that one third of Canadians have experienced mental illness in their lifetimes. That, those are some pretty significant uh, ratios, pretty important um, percentages. What do you think lies behind the increases? Is there simply less stigma for people to seek help and, and sort of admit that they're having trouble, or do those numbers actually represent more people getting sick? Yeah, I think um, we know that this um, issues of mental health are on the rise, not only in Canada and, and other industrialized nations, but also across the globe. Um, so then mental disorders such as anxiety and depression are already among the top 10 causes. Uh, what we in public health talk about is years lived with disability. So years okay. where we're really not living in optimal health. Um, and it's definitely part of it is tied to 
um, the aging population of Canada. Um, okay. In other countries, it, it's definitely partially due to an increase in diagnosis, right? So there are a lot of countries around the world where there's a lot of stigma um, surrounding mental health issues. And so um, I think as some of that drops away, people are more likely to be diagnosed with a mental health condition. Um, but I think, you know, some of our research probably also indicates that it has to do with the increasing urbanization of the planet as a whole. Um, this shift right. in urbanization really happened in North America, you know, probably a half century ago. Um, but in other countries, it's happening right now. And as people move to environments that are really different from the ones that um, humans lived in for, you know, much of history, um, that can have an impact on our mental health as well. And generally not a positive one, unfortunately. Right. And we've got, I mean, as you say, sort of more urban populations, and, and I'm thinking even in Vancouver, looking at how the density is increasing exponentially um, fairly quickly. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and I imagine that's, that's part of it too. Definitely. And I think, you know, that's something that we always include as a factor in our studies. I'm looking at population density. Um, also kind of how um, the structure of a city can um, keep people from having those social connections that are so vital for our overall health and for our mental health. Um, and also kind of specific design. So there's been a lot of research that's linked living in high rise housing to um, some mental health exacerbations at the very least. Um, so those are definitely factors. And I think, you know, we need to think about too, when people move either from the country to the city or, you know, move from another place, which I did when I came to Vancouver, but a lot of other Vancouverites do as well, um, that that can really fray those social ties that are so important for our health. Yeah, yeah, I actually remember doing that. I mean, I moved from one city to another. I moved from Ottawa to Vancouver, but sort of moving all of a sudden into a place where there was nobody around you that you had a past with yeah. and, you know, not having those those deeper connections to anybody. Um, can you, as we're going to be talking about some things as we go along, and maybe could you explain to us what green space and blue space? Is it simple as forest and water or... Is there a, a, um, a better definition? Yeah, I mean, I think those are easy ways to kind of um, keep track of them in our head. So green space are, um, are things like street trees all the way up to the massive forests on the North Shore for people who live in Vancouver. Um, and um, there are also things that maybe have a fewer natural elements, but still have some sort of greenery in them, right? So um, a public park can you know, be very natural or more built, but we still refer to that as green space. And blue okay. space, yeah, are those forms of water. So um, in Vancouver, we have, you know, we're really fortunate to have a lot of it, um, yes. rivers, lakes, oceans, um, but even something like an artificial um, fountain um, can be considered blue space in an urban setting as well. Got it. Okay. Um, okay, so let's dive into your research now, Emily. I realize that it's only a piece in your larger body of work, but I first became aware of your work with your Natural Space Index for Vancouver. Where did your idea for this index come from, and, and actually, what is it? Yeah, um, so... 
the reason I was really interested in building that index, which is basically just a model of all these different forms of green space and blue space across all of Metro Vancouver, um, was again because I really felt like we in public health weren't coming up with evidence that um, allowed us to be good partners with people in urban planning. So traditionally, people that have looked at um, green space have used this satellite-based measure that really just measures um, greenness. It's not even green space. So <laughs> it doesn't tell us anything about what that green space looks like, um, if people can access it or not. Um, uh, there's, for instance, where I used to live in Vancouver, I lived right by the Vancouver um, Lawn Bowling Club. And it's like this great green lawn that would be perfect if you're a satellite. Um, But, you know, I wasn't a member of the club, so I couldn't go there and take part in activities. Um, So I realized that we were kind of constrained by the tools that we were using. And I wanted to take a step forward and say, okay, if we understand specifically what types of nature there are in this particular environment, and then we can connect it to social ties and mental health, then we're one step further to saying, this is what we need, not just in Vancouver, but in cities in general um, to promote um, mental well-being. Okay. All right. So I think there were, can you give us some specifics about what you were measuring? Sure. Yeah. So the um, natural space index, um, I usually just call it the MSI um, because it's a long name. (laughs) Well, it makes me think think of outer space, the space index. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So it looks at four different aspects of green space and blue space. Um, First, the presence, and that's using, again, that um, satellite-based measure that people have been using in this area of research for a really long time. But then adding on to that, it looks at accessibility. So whether there's any factors that might keep someone from using a nearby green space, um, and that could be private ownership, Um, as was the case with that Vancouver Lawn Bowling Club. Um, It could also be where you need to get a permit um, or um, there's a fee to enter, so it's open to the public. Um, I don't know if you've been to the uh, George Rifle Bird Sanctuary. It's a great spot in the um, Mm. wetlands. Um, But, you know, there's a fee to enter, and that can definitely keep some people from being able to use it. Absolutely. Um, we also looked at quality. So we did some quality assessments to see if there were particular things like the number of trees, um, amenities like washrooms um, or cafes that might really be important in um, either drawing people to a green space or in the benefits that they get from being there. Um, yeah, so really all those factors, presence, oh, form, that's the one I didn't mention. So again, because I'm really interested in going that next step of, of promoting urban design, we also looked at specific forms that we thought were really important, in particular street trees. Um, street trees are one of the most common components of urban sustainability plans, um, both in Vancouver and around the globe, right? So. A lot of cities say we're going to plant this number of street trees, um, but we don't necessarily know what achieving that aim will get us in terms of people's mental health. Okay, right, right. 
Um, I actually was just wondering as you were speaking, like, is there more points for more trees or is there data about how humans interact with trees? And that probably just comes because I am a tree aficionado. I love the <laughs> trees. I notice the trees when I go places. Yeah. So. Yeah, so there's definitely um, more and more studies that look specifically at street trees. Um, I have some unpublished research where we look at street trees and found a really strong impact of them. Um, and, you know, that's true um, for something like mental health, we found. Um, but it can also be really important if we're interested in these other ecosystem services that urban nature provides. So things like shade, um, reductions right. in air pollution, for instance, can be really mm -hmm. important. And we're really different um, depending on what form we're looking at. Got it. Yeah. Well, I know one of the reasons that I love living in this city, in Vancouver in particular, is especially for the easy access to the wooded trails, the oceans, the rivers, the city parks, all that kind of thing. And I notice it when I travel to other cities. And as you say, there, there may be a dearth of trees along the roads. And I, I, after a little while, feel a little bit unsettled. It feels kind of barren and spare. Um, and I know I'm not alone in this because I've talked to people about this. When you arrive back at the Vancouver airport after traveling and being away, you walk out of the doors and take a deep breath of that wonderful sea, sea air. And it just feels like a homecoming, no matter where I've been. <laughs> so... I'm kind of curious, what does your, what can your study tell us about the relationships between green and blue spaces and mental health in the community? Does it go yeah. just beyond mitigating stress and helping us get in a better mood? Or is there data to support the idea that, that this time in nature could be a component of treatment? Or, yeah. Or, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think um, that kind of innate uh, connection that we have with nature is really where a lot of the research began. Um, so there's right. a number of kind of underlying theories that, that talk about um, this inherent connection we have with nature um, called biophilia. And there's been a lot of research that's looked at things like stress and mood. Um, where I really wanted to move my research was looking at more specific mental health outcomes. Um, and I think in part that's because you know, if you're looking again at this intersection of kind of public health and urban planning and policy, um, one thing we really need to be able to do is make an argument for um, the cost of investing, particularly in something like the urban forest or right. improving um, the quality of a local park and link that to something that um, policymakers understand. So something like actual costs within the healthcare system. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love. <laughs> well, so yeah, when we're thinking about this in a million different ways. I mean, the information can benefit a municipality. Um, I don't know if, the, I mean, I, we benefit a municipality, we'll benefit the, the healthcare bodies. Um, how do we bring them together? Is it just taking the data and making the argument? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that I've really struggled with in my own work. Um, I, I had some connections within the, um, the Parks and Recreation Board in Vancouver. Um, I knew some people who worked at like Fraser Health, but it was really hard to um, make those connections between those two different kind of siloed areas. Um, 
I think that unfortunately just doing the research probably isn't enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can definitely do research translation. Um, so one of the things I was involved with was an effort um, that actually was built out of a collaboration that existed between um, Fraser Health, um, BCCDC, um, people in various municipal governments. And it was designed to build a toolkit to actually adapt an existing toolkit that focused on physical health um, Mm -hmm. and to look at kind of the urban form or what people often call the built environment. Um, I like urban form because then I get to sneak my nature in there. It's not necessarily (laughs) part of the built environment. Um, And um, mental health, but specifically in a way that was really practical for policymakers to take and use. So it kind of distilled a lot of this research into um, smaller components, into um, language that that spoke to those audiences. Um, So I think that's a really important part too, right? Taking uh, all this research that's been developed and putting it in terms that people in those different arenas can understand. And then also, you know, doing some sort of outreach. people know that it's there too. Okay. So are there populations or communities that are disproportionately affected by a lack of access to green spaces? Yeah, I think that really depends on um, the setting that you're talking about. So there's been a lot of research in um, the U.S. that's shown that in general, people in lower income communities and in ethnic minorities have less access to um, different forms of green space parks in particular, and often also have access to lower quality parks. Um, But research that um, some other colleagues in forestry at UBC have done and some research that I've done found that that's not necessarily the case in Vancouver. Um, And I think a lot of that has to do with kind of getting back to this issue of gentrification, but um, with the ways that um, nature is embedded in our city, um, in areas that have often lower density, and those lower density areas um, are often places where people with uh, lower income or more diverse communities live. So it, it depends also on the type of nature you're talking about. Um, and definitely in terms of street trees, and, um, there's been findings that that kind of east-west divide that we talk about a lot in Vancouver um, has differences in terms of the urban forest. Um, but in terms of like park quality or overall green space access, um, that's not necessarily the case in Vancouver. So in some places in the world, but not in Vancouver, which I find really interesting, uh, this is actually perhaps an issue of equity. Access I think, to green space. Yeah, I mean, and even still, I definitely think it's an, um, an equity issue in Vancouver, right? So okay. um, one of the things that we like to talk about in public health is this difference between equality and equity. And so you can have an equal number of resources on that east-west divide. Um, But that doesn't necessarily mean that the distribution of those resources is equitable. So one of the things that we know about um, access to nature is that it can have particular benefits for people uh, with lower socioeconomic status, for people with pre-existing mental illness, 
Um, so we would want to see a situation where people who can have the biggest benefits from urban nature actually have more access to it, right? So not necessarily that they just have the same access, um, but that the people who really need it have access to it. The other thing that I think um, isn't necessarily taken into account in um, those uh, investigations of um, how green space is distributed across Vancouver um, is that we don't always know what people's private access is like. So um, even though things might be kind of equal and we're looking at the public sphere, um, people um, with more income might be able to spend more time traveling to right. uh, those mountains on the North Shore. They might have a private garden or a backyard with a whole bunch of trees in it. Um, so those are also things that we really need to think about, but that are maybe a bit harder to measure. Absolutely. So there, uh, truly there might be people who would argue that spending money on natural spaces in a city is a luxury um, and that there might be a million other things that could take priority. Um, You've alluded to that we do think that there are conversations to be had around changes in how or what we fund with our tax dollars to improve the health quotient in our cities with natural spaces. But do, do you think that spending money in this area could potentially decrease spending money in other areas? And what might those areas be? Yeah, um, I definitely think that's true. So in terms of what my research specifically shows, um, we have some unpublished work that looks at um, prescriptions um, for antidepressant and anti-anxiety medications. And those prescriptions are really common in Canada. And mm-hmm. they're also um, a fairly big burden on the healthcare system. Um, and so we showed that street trees in particular were associated with kind of reductions in the chances that people would need one of those prescriptions. So that's a really direct savings to the healthcare system. Absolutely. Um, again, getting back to that kind of ecosystem services, and those other things that um, urban nature provides, particularly things like street trees, um, they can be really important in terms of climate change mitigation. Um, right. They can be um, really important in terms of, um, especially as we in Cascadia face these warmer, wetter winters and have, I think you guys have had a really wet fall. <laughs> I haven't been there. Um, but how cities are able to um, absorb that water and, and keep it um, yeah, flowing of instead it. of overflowing. Yeah. yeah. So that's definitely a way. Um, and then I think, you know, there's also kind of this argument to be made that's maybe not um, something that we know the health costs of yet. Um, but one of the things that I'm really interested in and that my research is focused on is the ways that nature might be really important for social connections. And um, there have been reports, two actually reports done in Vancouver by the Vancouver Foundation, where they asked people, what are you most concerned about as a resident of this area? And in both of them, people really reported social isolation as their top Mm -hmm. issue. Um, So I think we maybe don't have good data on how much that um, social isolation costs, but we do have a lot of data that shows us how harmful it can be um, for our overall health, our cardiovascular health. Um, and then some of the research I did um, on our mental health as well. 
sounds like it's a, it's so many of these decisions when it comes down to actually putting money out there to, to change poli- to, to change programs and policies. More often than not, we're looking at cost benefit analysis and all of that stuff. But what I'm hearing is that there's no way to say, okay, I've paid my $3 over here and it's going to be, I'm going to get the same out on the other side. It's very much more intricate and complicated. And um, there are huge benefits in a wide range of areas, but it's going to be a lot harder to, to sort of demonstrate in traditional ways that clear cost benefit analysis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, and there are people who are doing those, um, uh, and they have, I think, some in- interesting and important findings. One of the other issues is that um, where the cost savings come from and where those benefits accrue to aren't necessarily the same places, right? Right. So yeah. often, especially at that municipal level, like we have a certain budget that goes to the Parks and Rec Department, and we have an entirely different budget that goes to public health. And so um, Hmm. how we can make arguments for savings in one area being able to be used in another area, I think is another one of those challenges. But yeah, I think, you know, there's there's definitely the the calculable economic costs, Mm -hmm. but there are also these really critical costs that maybe we don't have a good way of measuring in terms of dollars. Absolutely, absolutely. Kind of more the the soft side of it that is a qualitative thing and much, much harder to define and and harder to study. Yeah, um, and I think still really important. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes, vitally so. <laughs> well, it's it's you know you were talking a minute ago about about municipalities and, and communities, and I've heard it said that that municipalities are kind of like a ground zero for healthcare, that, that we can make big policies nationally and provincially, but it's in how they're rolled out uh, in, in the smaller centers, in municipalities, in cities, uh, in communities, that where the, that's where the, the largest effects for the individual happen. Um, and I hear you talking about these silos. You know, you've got the parks and rec and the healthcare and, and all of these places that are doing different things. Um, I don't know if you see any of this in your research. Do you think there could be a path some way, somehow, where, say, municipalities like the city of Vancouver and health bodies like Vancouver Coastal Health or Fraser Health or any of those might partner in urban health initiatives specifically around urban design? Or is yeah, that just a unicorns and rainbows scenario? No, no. <laughs> I mean, I think that that is the next step. And that's where I'm hoping we go. Um, and I think you're totally right about that. And even, um, there's a lot of history for that, um, kind of cities as incubators, um, in Vancouver itself. So if you look at, for instance, um, access to, um, safe injection sites, right. Uh, Vancouver really pioneered that. And now it's something that has expanded a lot in Vancouver where we have, um, actual sites where they're, um, giving people access to a safe supply of drugs. Um, but that original curl of an idea that started in Vancouver is now happening in other cities all across the world. So I think that, um, there's definitely opportunities at the municipal and regional level um, that don't exist anywhere else. 
Um, but there's still those challenges. Um, even though you would think um, those silos, because they're smaller and closer together, um, it's easier for people to to reach out um, and uh, between them, there's still unfortunately silos that exist. Right. Finding ways to, to make connections in between those silos and, and uh, I guess, create those relationships is, is something that those of us in the cities who are interested in this kind of thing need to get more involved in. Yeah, and I think it really does begin oftentimes with personal relationships. Um, I think it, um, it can be really hard. I So I used to work for the municipal government in um, San Francisco, mm-hmm. and it can be really hard to find time um, when you're, you know, very busy, um, often can't even take on um, extra work and extra time if you want to. Like there's often restrictions in terms of overtime at the right. municipal level. Um, you usually come in and you have a very defined set of duties already. So it's definitely hard to say, um, in addition to what I already have, I really want to um, do this other work where I really collaborate with other departments. Um, but I think that, you know, sometimes it can happen because there's someone, um, a political leader who really is interested in that and helps promote it. Or yep. sometimes it really is just these individual relationships that people build off of and that turn into collaborations. It sounds like it's really grassroots and off the side of people's desks almost. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it often is. I mean, um, those can definitely become formalized relationships. And I think that's where um, collaborations um, really tend to have the most success is is once they become more formalized, but it doesn't usually start there, right? Um, okay. It usually starts, I think, at that lower, more intimate, um, interpersonal level. Now, we've talked a lot about Vancouver in the last little while, but I, I seem to remember hearing that you had done a bunch of travel to megacities like Sao Paulo and Jakarta. Um, I'm curious what you saw there. What brought you to those cities? What struck you about those cities? Um, you know, what, what was interesting in those cities for you? Yeah, um, I think what's really interesting is that even cities like something like Jakarta, where people often kind of think of all the worst aspects of it as a mega city. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it doesn't necessarily have the best um, wastewater infrastructure, or um, it definitely has like really high pollution. But there still are again these kind of incubators for change. So in Jakarta, for instance, they had this idea to have bus rapid transit because they had terrible problems with traffic and there wasn't really a good way to encourage people to use public transit when they were just going to be stuck there for hours and hours. Right. So they carved out these lanes on their highways that are just for buses and you kind of like cross halfway over a highway and stand at a bus shelter. Um, But so even somewhere like that, right, where I think people would wouldn't necessarily think to turn there for this really innovative idea, um, yep. but there they are doing something really innovative. Um, there's some really interesting efforts underway in Barcelona right now called the Superblock model. Um, I'm sorry, could you say that again? The Superblock. Yeah, model? they're called Superblocks. Oh, okay. So like, yeah. they they're actually taking a bunch of individual blocks and um, um, kind of creating these things called Superblocks, where they're um, 
isn't traffic allowed through it. Um, and hmm. they're um, integrating specific amounts of green space in there. So I think um, there's great examples all over the world um, and even in places that we wouldn't think to look for necessarily. Um, Vancouver, I think, um, is one of the first cities to kind of embed environmental sustainability in their plan. So the Greenest City 2020 plan and the updates. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, we have a lot to be proud of as Vancouverites, um, but there's these really um, innovative concepts that people are exploring around the world. And I think um, if we can look to them and take what works and then help spread what we know has worked in Vancouver um, at the city to city level, it's really um, something that's great to do. I have a question. Are there any, um, you know, as we were talking about the silos in Vancouver, are there any bodies or organizations or gatherings where people who are doing this kind of work can get together? You know, somebody from Jakarta and somebody from Barcelona and somebody from Vancouver. And um, are there are there places where people can can um, get together to talk about this, or is it yeah, purely no. in academic circles? Um, no, there definitely are. So, for instance, um, there was a big urban forestry conference uh, in Vancouver, I guess, last year now, um, where people came, you know, a lot of people, again, from Cascadia, so from like Seattle and Portland, um, but also a lot of people from cities in China, um, where they're also really trying to um, expand the urban forest um, and to... Um, integrate nature in lots of different ways. So that's kind of academic. It's a conference. Um, I think there's also um, people come together for other things. So I was part of the team that put together the um, an exhibit at the Museum of Vancouver on urban nature. And that definitely brought together people from um, things like the um, people who had like bird watching groups and people who came from UBC and people who came from the First Nation. So that was a really interesting space for people to come together. I think um, natural spaces themselves are actually a place where people come together, right? So one of the things people talk about is nature being this kind of third place where um, people who wouldn't necessarily interact otherwise do. Um, and I think you'll find that, right? It's a place where you don't usually have to pay a fee to enter. Um, but if you go to Stanley Park on a weekend, you know, there's people from so many different part walks of life, from so many other places. From everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you start listening even just... I like to see how many languages I can pick out on a day that I go to Stanley Park because <laughs> it, it is such an international venue and those might be people that actually live here in the city or they might be tourists, but uh, everybody's usually in a really good mood when they're at Stanley Park. They're pretty yeah. chill, laid, laid back and um, yeah, it's a very special place to go. It sounds like you're saying to us, Emily, that Vancouver's a bit of a world leader when it comes to um, sustainability and urban design? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a lot to be proud of, right? So the fact that we have um, in Green City 2020, not only does it have kind of this generic, um, widely applicable goal of having everyone within a 10-minute 
walking distance of a public green space, but it also talks about the need to reach um, specific groups like um, people with children, people with um, maybe less means. So I think that um, those things are definitely one way that we're a leader. Um, Interestingly enough, Surrey is also doing some really fascinating work. Um, They're really great in terms of um, measuring their various um, green resources and then making those data publicly available, um, which is a researcher (laughs) I I really appreciate. But I think that, you know, um, people, it's nice to just know to have good maps and good information about those green resources, um, parks and other things in your local community as well. Um, right. Yeah, so I think there's definitely a lot for us to be proud of. And of course, something like Stanley Park, which um, people know around the world and um, draws people, I think, to Vancouver. Um, but there's definitely still work to be done. So I think um, one of the areas I really would hope we go to next is Um, kind of unpacking that 10-minute walk, right? So a Mm 10-minute walk is going to be really different to a mom with a stroller, to someone um, with a mobility aid um, versus someone in their early 20s and in perfect health, right? So um, I think even when we talk about equitable access, that that's really one of the next steps is thinking through who lives in our city. And what does it mean for them to access these really vital resources? And interesting when you consider how neighborhoods change over time. Um, And is whatever is there able to adapt as the population ages? Or, um, I I don't know, I just think of, of... one of the neighborhoods that that I lived in with my husband. And when we first moved there, there really weren't a whole lot of kids around. We came in at a time when all of a sudden there were kids everywhere. I guess a lot of young families moved in. And since that time, you know, there's sort of been a a warp and a wave or whatever that term is. (laughs) Um, And um, just to watch the change in the neighborhood, I'm curious if that's a, a factor in the equity conversation is, is the change over time in who's living in those neighborhoods. Yeah. And I think it's, it definitely needs to be, um, but it probably isn't often enough. And that's in part because we don't necessarily have the um, data that we would need to on how um, community demographics are changing. So you have something like the decennial census, but you know, every 10 years, especially in a city like Vancouver, things have changed so dramatically over that time. Um, I think the other thing to remember is that nature is really dynamic, right? So um, the resources that people are getting in terms of nature are going to shift over time, even if the people don't shift because trees mature, they die. Um, As our climate changes, the types of trees that are really going to do well in Vancouver are going to change. And the things that we planted maybe 20 or 40 years ago might not be the things that we want to plant today. You know, there's there's definitely um, trends in planting. So I know um, in the 20s, like the monkey puzzle trees were really popular and I love them myself. But it also means that they're all kind of getting to a point in their maturity where a lot of them are going to die off soon. Right. Um, 
So yeah, I think it's really hard because uh, the city itself is so dynamic, nature itself is so dynamic. Um, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to to meet the needs of the changing city and um, ensure that we're responding to those changes in climate, which just means that it's a little more challenging. I have a question for you, Emily, that's been percolating. We've talked a lot about Vancouver today, but of course, in terms of climate, Vancouver is a very unique location if you consider what the rest of Canada, for instance, is like <laughs> for a whole bunch of months, say in the winter. Yeah. Are there thoughts um, <clears throat> about how those winter communities, those those places where it's snowbound for months at a time, what do they do to access greener blue spaces? Or does it just become a white space and that that is equally as beneficial? To do? Yeah, so it's definitely something that people who do research in those other settings are attuned to, and there are people who have looked at those issues of seasonal change. Um, I think, again, you know, that really requires things like the development of a natural space index or paying more attention to um, how conditions change over a year. A lot of times people just kind of measure green space in the summer when it's nice and green. But I think it gets back to this really important issue, right? Of this difference between greenness and nature. Mm. And so if you're in the prairies in the winter, um, you can definitely still have those beneficial interactions with nature. 100%. But it's not necessarily going to be with greenness, right? So um, we need to think of ways um, that we can have nature across the year and for all these different groups of people. And um, that means getting beyond this kind of concept of urban nature as a single thing and really thinking through um, what nature looks like in Calgary in January versus what it looks like in Vancouver in July, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I have so many questions about the whole (laughs) thing, actually. Like... Like, is it the color green and the the sort of lushness that, uh, like, is there a different quality to how that impacts our health than than a, a space in the fall? I can tell you right now, it is fall, it's late October when we're recording this interview, and the city of Vancouver is a jewel. She is so colorful with all the fall colors, but that's not a lot focused around green, I can tell you that right now. Oh. And I've been so jealous seeing everyone's pictures because um, I don't know if you remember, but Europe, there were kind of uh, multiple successive heat waves over the mm-hmm. summer. Right, and yes. And so a Very lot dry. of the trees um, underwent like a huge amount of drought stress. And so oh. now instead of turning beautiful colors, the leaves are just kind of brown and dying. They're just falling off, eh? Yeah, which is so depressing to me personally. Um but yeah, I think that's, uh, if we go back to kind of those underlying theories, actually that um, range of colors is part of one of the theories. So there's one um, called attention restoration theory that um, says basically that nature helps us effortlessly focus our attention on the things that we're interested in because mm. it has all of these components. And one of them is kind of dynamic color. Um so, yeah, I think that's definitely something that people, not necessarily in my field, but there's a lot of people who are either landscape architects or they do um, psychology that look more at those kind of specific features. 
Um, so it's something I think where it can help us design parks to uh, have the most mental health benefits um, in terms of integrating those different kind of features that we know are, are good for our mental health for sure. Um, and again, I'm just really jealous. <laughs> it's so beautiful as well. I was saying yesterday to somebody that the world outside smells like a crunchy leaf. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's yeah, something that's really important too, right? So I don't think we've talked about this yet, but the um, Japanese have this longstanding tradition of um, shinrin yoku. Shinrin it's like a yoku. Forest bathing. Forest bathing. Exactly. But so <laughs> Is that, that really that's a thing that sounds like a spa thing you tell me about this forest no, baby yeah um so it's a it's a very old practice but there's been a lot of new research on it um but one of the things that kind of makes it a little different is it focuses on this complete immersion in natural environments so things like listening to that um twig or crunchy leaf under your foot um smelling the scents of flowers in the spring or that like nice wet leaf scent in the fall. Um, so yeah, I think that there's ways that we interact with nature that are very immersive. Um, and people have looked at that specifically in terms of what kind of uh, mental health benefits it brings. And it has them. I find Perhaps it interesting to consider that, uh, there's been, um, Again, recently, as we record this this episode, um, there have just been huge climate action uh, gatherings. Uh, Greta Thunberg was in town uh, yesterday or the day before. Um, and it's interesting to me, as we're talking through this, I'm thinking, okay, even beyond the, the huge global implications of the changing climate, um, there are, there are, pieces of that that w will affect not just our our livability in in cities and and you know fires and floods and and all of that kind of thing but also uh about our our mental health yeah <laughs> um that that that's something i sort of hadn't really even factored into the equation um even beyond the urgency of the, the livability being a problem but less access to nature and less access to all of these these things that are so nourishing for me personally, um, it really changes the nature of our world. Yeah, and I mean, I think the counterpart to that is that there are people making really strong arguments right now for nature-based solutions um, yes. as a response to climate change. Um, and that can be anything from planting trees along streets um, for shade, which is going to be really important, maybe not in a place like Vancouver, um, mm -hmm. but in, you know, a lot of the cities in Europe where um, people don't have air conditioning, um, where um, there is really in the summers a risk of people dying in heat waves. Um, so I think that there's definitely the um, mental health harms of this sense of a world changing maybe beyond our control. Right. Um, but there's also this opportunity, right? So there's this opportunity to respond to this crisis with nature-based solutions that will both um, help in terms of these um, other factors of the environment, like um, 
flooding rivers and like increase shade, but also provide mental health benefits. So I think one of the things I'm really trying to do now is argue that that we can use these tools that nature has given us to um, get these multiple aims. So um, improving people's mental health, um, reducing social isolation, which you know is a huge problem not just in Vancouver but in cities around the world. Um, and then you know from that kind of um, infrastructure perspective um, as well. Emily, we are arriving at the end of our time for this conversation. This is the point where we like to ask you to please let us know, according to you, what is health? Yes, yeah, so I, in, in public health, we have a very uh, clear definition that comes from the World Health Organization that says it's a state of complete um, physical, mental, and social well-being. Um, so I think that is a nice place to start. And then, of course, it has all this complexity to unpack. But I think um, thinking through the fact that health has those components, that it is our physical health, our mental health, and really importantly to me, our social health is um, really mm-hmm. critical to keep in mind. And I think that part of well-being, they did very intentionally as well, um, because it's not just not being ill. It's not just um you know not having a chronic condition but it's actually a state of thriving and i think that's something that we want everyone to be able to achieve and i think that's something that particularly in urban environments nature can help us with very well said yeah emily rugel thank you so much for coming on the show today to talk about this important component in creating mental health friendly cities Thank you so much for having me. Um, Again, I'll continue to be jealous of all your beautiful fall leaf (laughs) pictures. Um, We'll send you more. (laughs) Please do. Please do. Um, And um, yeah, I hope that your listeners take this as a reminder that they can go out and immerse themselves in nature wherever they may be, whether that's something as little as just, you know, a small pocket park down the block or something like the beautiful river spree I have in front of me right now. Oh, beautiful. Well, you know, I'm a fan of your work. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. We encourage everyone to get outside, seek nature and the blue spaces, green spaces, and find ways to get involved in in greening up your neighborhood and and making those social interactions in in nature. Um, In our show notes, you'll find links to learn more about Emily's work and all the places you can find her on social media. So that's it for today's episode of Small Conversations for a Better World. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Same time, same place next week. Yeah, that sounds great. I'll see you then, Sue. We'll have the coffee on. If you liked what you heard, we encourage you to head on over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Better yet, subscribe and leave a review. That really helps to make it easier for others to find us to help broaden this small conversation.